The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. Importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo and help your organization move forward in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place on this hot summer morning here in New York. We're talking to guests from all over the world. Let's get started. The buzz today, peekaboo, I see you. Well, it's not necessarily just a children's game anymore. Let me tell you why. With information transparency today fueled by social data, and that's something we call human-created data, that means you and me and everyone, the collection and manipulation of our personal data by businesses is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Everything you say, everything you tweet, everything you do, Somebody is finding it and they want to use it and they want to make money off of it. Well, guess what? A lot of us are just not happy about it. You might say, well, blame it on social networks. Yeah, we were fine until we had Facebook. We were fine until we had Instagram. We were fine. Well, the challenge is not with social networks. It's with the data collection policies of the business that are harvesting that data and processing data from these networks. Yes, the data is human created. We put it out there. But somebody is pulling it in and wants to do something with it. There must be ethical implications. There are legal implications, we hope. But the question is, do we have a say in all this in this age of transparency? We have a very fascinating team of panelists today, as I said, from all over the world. And we're going to get started hearing their words of wisdom. So first up... I'd like to introduce a returning guest to Game Changers Radio. He's Tim Barker, Chief Product Officer for Data Sift. And here's an interesting quote Tim sent me from Nicholas Negroponte. If you're scratching your head, he is the chairman emeritus and founder of MIT's Media Lab and the founder of a nonprofit association called One Laptop Per Child. And he's an MIT graduate and an architect. So here's the quote. Computing is not about computers anymore. It's about living. Tim Barker, welcome back. That's a huge quote. Tell me how you found it and how are you? Hey, Bonnie. Uh, I'm very good. Good to speak to you again. And a happy Thank belated you. 4th of July. And that hurts coming from a Brit. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 heard, uh, I heard the accent and I heard, uh, yes, tongue-in-cheek. Go ahead, Tim. Take your chances. Is, Go ahead. Tongue-in-cheek. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I think it's going to be a to- one of the main topics now that we're going to be talking about is the essential nature of technology, how it's become ingrained. Social networks over the last seven years have gone from a novelty to mass mainstream media. And so, you know, they've become an important part and a foundation, really, I guess, of many of our lives. 
So uh, this is about technology for living. Um, that, that quote is also sometimes attributed to, uh, interestingly, Robert Scoble, who is a very well-known um, uh, technology commentator and, um, you know, someone that very publicly lives their life on social media. And, and I thought I'd use that quote because today um, we're going to be talking about the balance of living <laughs> and sharing and transparency that goes with that for, you know, our personal lives and also for businesses. Thank you. Yes, and you did originally tell me the quote was from Scoble, and I, I looked him up. A very interesting. He's an American blogger, tech evangelist, and author best known for his blog, Scobalizer, which came to prominence during his tenure as a tech evangelist at Microsoft. By the way, he was born in Piscataway, New Jersey, in case anybody's looking for that information. And one of his books is Naked Conversations, How Blogs Are Changing the Way Businesses Talk with Customers. Very interesting. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to have you with us today. Where are you calling from, by the way? I'm at our offices in Reading, which is about uh, 60 miles west of London. Okay. I hope everything's good there. We'll be chatting with you a lot more during the show. Thank you very much. And welcoming a newcomer to our panel, she is Nora Bukadid, B-O-U-K-A-D-I-D, in case you want to look her up. She leads EY's Data Privacy Services Group in Amsterdam, as well as the Data Protection and Privacy Community in EY's EMEA region. And here's an interesting quote from Nora. It is correctly attributed to Leon C. Meganson, but often attributed... I believe to Albert Einstein. No, Darwin, Darwin, Darwin. Darwin. And I'll tell you, <laughs> Darwin, and I'll tell you why it's important. It's so important. There are people who spend a lot of time searching for quotes by Einstein and Darwin to see if, in fact, people are just tossing those names over the fence to sound important. But this quote was originally Darwin's, we think, and uh, people thought it was Darwin's. It's so interesting that the quote is, it's emblazoned or displayed on the stone floor of the California Academy of Sciences. But after this new research, they removed Darwin's name and they put in Megginson. So here's the quote. It's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent. It's the one that is most adaptable to change. Nora Bukadid, welcome. How are you? Yeah, doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining yeah. us. I hope I didn't upset you with taking Darwin's name off the quote, but I'm a I'm a stickler for quote attributions, and I love doing the research. <laughs> so how do how do we apply this idea that it's not the strongest or the most intelligent, but the most adaptable to survive this issue of data privacy in our age of transparency, Nora? Yeah, and I think it, it's an often used quote, but uh, in general, I think right now, more than ever before, we live in an era where today is never the same as yesterday, so we have quite a lot of upcoming and changing regulation. We have uh, the customer being more and more powerful. We have quite a lot of uh, disruptive innovations, new technologies, so there's change everywhere. Uh, and we also live in a time where you see qu- qu- uh, countries quickly arise, countries collapse, uh, we see we get a lot of surprises, and I think right now more than ever, change and being able to adopt change uh, is really the key to success, and that also applies here. Do you think we are immune to all of this? Uh, I'll call it data poaching, or or people who want our data. Do you think there's a place we could run and hide and still be social, Nora? Mm, I, I don't think running and hiding is an is a an option. But I think that there are absolutely certain measures that we can take. Okay. We're going to be exploring that on the show today. Thank you for joining us. And you are calling from where today, Nora? 
calling from Amsterdam from our office. What time of day is it there? It is four in four nine in the afternoon. Okay, well, thank you for taking the time. I know it's a long day for you, and we appreciate it. We'll hear from you a lot more during the show. And joining us to round out our panel is Roger Gorman, the founder and CEO of ProFinda, P-R-O-F-I-N-D-A.com. And here's an original Roger Gorman quote. To connect our collective wisdom and social capital to change the world is hindered often by data, policies, and processes. If we can navigate this, it's time for data-driven serendipity. I love that word. Roger Gorman, all the way from New York City right this moment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Thanks for joining me. Tell me about your quote. Let's unravel it. How does it apply to our topic? Well, it's firstly, I mean, I should be super clear. It's uh, very pretentious to use your own quote, but this is actually driven from a, <laughs> a range of different quotes that I uh, that I've aggregated over the time. But I mean, I, one that I love, if I sort of add libit, is from Steve Johnson, um, who, who's famously talking about where fortune favors the connected mind, um, and it's something I, I love because it works so well in networking. And as we go more digital, um, it leans directly, I guess, into this whole topic area, which is, has to be data driven. Um, and uh, from from my interests, it's so interesting to stop relying on serendipity, um, which obviously is a wonderful romantic notion. But if we can <laughs> drive serendipity through data, um, I think it's going to change everything. Um, and so that's where that collection of uh, sort of stolen quotes have come from. Stolen quotes. Well, <laughs> we'll say loose, loosely unattributed. Thank you very much. Uh, I love the word serendipity, Roger. I don't know if you come to New York often, but there used to be, and there still may be, a wonderful little, I don't know, it's a coffee shop, a soda shop called Serendipity. And they are world famous for their frozen hot chocolate drink, which comes in a, we'll talk about this later, maybe, of a huge mug, and it's ice cold, frozen, once hot chocolate. And if you have a chance wow. to find it, I think it's in Midtown, Midtown, just Google serendipity, exactly the way you spelled it, and see. I think it's still there. And I don't know if you're a chocolate fan like I am, but uh, that might be a highlight of, of your trip to New York today. Thank you very much, Roger. Pleasure to have you with us. Now, speaking of drinks, Tim Barker, of all people, knows what I'm going to do next, Tim. We're circling back to you, and I'm going to ask you, what's in your cup today, whatever time of day it is where you are in the U.K.? Uh, tell me something interesting about what you're drinking about what you're thinking about drinking after we're off the air. Tim? Well, Bonnie, as you know, I've been on this show once or twice before, and I've learned the oh, yeah. routine that every time I have to up my beverage. Um, <laughs> so, so today, well, today I'm, I've, got a, I've made myself a mint tea before coming on air. So um, what I will tell you that's interesting about it is that there's actually three types of mint that I've got here. I've got peppermint, spearmint, and the third one, which sounds, doesn't sound too aspirational, field mint. So you're, anyone listening, your job is to go off and tell me what field mint is. That was a new one on me. Field mint. Well, I'm going to do that right now. If you just give me a second here, let's see what field mint is. Images of field mint. Okay, it's mentha arvensis, and it is a wild mint or corn mint, a species of mint with a circumboreal circumboreal distribution native to the temperate regions of Europe, Western and Central Asia, east to the Himalayas and Eastern Siberia, North America, blah, 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 blah. It rarely goes above 39 inches tall. It's a creeping root stock. That's all I'm going to talk about. Is that enough? <laughs> it tastes pretty good. And if there's any chewing gum manufacturers listening, I think I've found a new flavor for you. 
There you go. It says chemical substances that could be attracted from wild men include menthol and all kinds of other flavors. Thank you very much for introducing us to that. I don't know if you were on the show recently, uh, Tim, when I mentioned that when I go to a restaurant and ask for mint tea, the waiter typically shakes his head, no, we don't have that. And he comes out with peppermint tea and says, Miss, will this be okay? And I just say, sure, it's got the word mint in it. It's good enough for me. We'll just leave that alone. They just don't. Maybe they're just being super cautious. I don't know. Thank you, Tim. Nora Bukadid, you're new to the show. You're in Amsterdam. It's late in the afternoon. Are you drinking something really interesting right now or planning to drink something interesting after the show? Well, I don't know whether it's interesting. I'm just drinking a cup of tea, tropical fruit, (laughs) in, in a paper cup. (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay. Stating, let's see, stating building a better working world, EY. So a branded paper cup. In a branded paper cup. I'm writing this down. Okay. And and uh, tropical tea, any special flavors in it? Uh, any special plants that are included in this tropical blend, I assume? Yeah, it's a tropical blend. And I actually have no clue what kind of tropical fruits it includes, but it tastes very well. I'm glad very much. Roger Gorman, you're in my fair city of New York. What are you drinking right now? I know it's 10.14 in the morning, so what are you drinking? Well, very oddly, uh, and perhaps serendipitously, I'm actually, uh, as I sit in this um, interesting hotel room, I'm actually having a, a, <laughs> a hot chocolate. So I think because it is so bad, uh, it's one of the things I'll be doing after this show is uh, running off to your your cafe you mentioned and finding myself a real one. Ah, there, there you are. Are you in New York for a while on business? Yeah, so it's been a couple of weeks, um, and it's been a very exciting time meeting some uh, some folk out here. Um, obviously, we're just trying to join up the dots between more work and more activities in the UK and the US. Um, so, yeah, so we've been greeted in the... Well, and I think we've missed the unbelievable uh, heat that's been going on in London. Um, somehow, I managed to skip that because I enjoyed rain before I got on the plane. Um, uh-huh. But it's been very nice over here, as you know. Good. Well, I told them to roll out the welcome mat and make the weather better for you, Roger Gorman. <laughs> I did that on purpose, so I wanted you to feel welcome and welcome again. Uh, it's time for us to go to our first break. Very interesting panel. Even though Roger is here, you can tell from his accent, he's not here all the time. And uh, we, we certainly have some interesting points of view here. Our topic today is data privacy and protection in the age of transparency. What is our doing? What is our fault? What is the What are the implications in terms of privacy and protection? What is the role and what are the ethical guidelines if such a thing goes together with the word business in business today? How much can you blame social networks? How much can you blame the businesses that want your information at all costs? We're going to find out a lot more when we come back after the break. My guests today are Tim Barker at Data Sift, Nora Bukadid at EY, and Roger Gorman at ProFinder.com. We'll find out a little more about them when we come back for the roundtable and Tim Barker knows he's up first and he's going to help me kick it off. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Digital World with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as more digitally demanding employees, customers, and partners, an increasing variety of digital devices, resource scarcity coupled with data abundance, and extensive business networks and complex supply chains. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Digital World with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Digital World with Game Changers. Here we are. We're back. And a shout-out to Anya Reschke, who is at... A-N-J-A-R-E-S-C-H-K-E. She is tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio. Says, listen to experts from ProFinder, DataSyst, and EY discuss data privacy and protection live on SAP Radio now. Thank you, Anya. Tim Barker, not only is he on the show, he's tweeting at the same time. We've got a multitasker here. Appreciate that, Tim. And speaking of Tim, he has graciously agreed to help me kick off the roundtable segment. Joining Tim today on the panel are Nora Bukadid from EY and Roger Gorman at ProFinder. Tim, I'm looking at your notes from before the show and I see some really basic way, a basic way to enter the conversation here and get our main topic started. Talking about data usage and transparency and a big question arises, why are people worried and what can companies do to increase trust? And this is such a basic question, Tim, because we want to trust the companies we do business with, period, end of story. And if we suspect they're grabbing our data, we may not trust them, we may not like them, and hence we may not want to do business with them, on and on and on. So why don't you tell us how where this all comes from, Tim, and then we will invite Nora and Roger to comment as well. Go ahead. Certainly, and I think, you know, it's worth uh, underlining what you just said there, which is that you know, trust is the most important uh, asset that an organization has. It's how brands are built. You know, they say brands are what people say about you when you're not in the room, and ultimately a lot of that comes down to trust. Um, you know, if you look historically just over the last two or three years, there's a few things that have certainly been pivotal, that are, you know, raising the sensitivity towards this. Um, certainly in the... Um, in the era of data brokers, you know, last year the FTC commissioned a report and there was some widespread media coverage around the industry around data brokers. These are companies that are putting, you know, pixels in your web pages that are trying to build profiles of audiences so that they can provide that data to marketers. Um, so there are, you know, both technology is advancing to allow, you know, companies to do this at scale from a marketing perspective. Um, clearly, in the post-Snowden era, there's this heightened uh, sensitivity, especially in the U.S. Um, there's always been a slightly higher sensitivity towards privacy across Europe. Um, but that, again, has really placed it on the radar. And then being based in Europe, where I am, um, clearly the kind of advancement of um, 
data protection uh, is something which is uh, continually on the agenda as the European Union looks to harmonize kind of policies around this area. And famously last year, the right to be forgotten. Um, I think you might say that some of this really is represented in research that um, an independent research firm, Pew, Pew Research, did last November, where they highlighted that 91% of adults, you know, um, feel that they've lost control of, of their personal information and how companies can use it. And I think as part of this and part of the debate is there are effectively companies that you, that you primarily interact with, like when we all look on an Amazon and get a great experience because it was personalized mm -hmm. for us based on the data. And then there is the secondary use of that data in, in the broader marketing uh, context. And so I think those are some of the, the foundations and the uh, advancements in technology that, that, that are raising sensitivity and probably that draw us here today to really talk about how companies can gain a balance on providing insights and protecting mm -hmm. identity. Interesting. And, and contextual experiences is another buzzword we hear around, floating around today. Tim, we, we want a company to know who we are when we walk in the store, when we log in. We want them to know our purchasing history, but we don't want them to get creepy private into our lives and tell us, hey, congratulations, mama. We hear the baby's due in eight weeks, but we haven't told our family or somebody else yet. So there, there is that uh, balance. The word you used is certainly very, very important. Let's get Nora Bukadid's take on this, Nora at EY. Nora, what do you think about the topics that Tim put on the table for us? Yeah, I think the first part that, that Tim started with, that trust is very important and becoming more and more important. I absolutely agree. And why are people worried? I think that, that, that the worries are very valid, and there's still too many companies that are processing inf personal information on a very large scale, and they still really don't have the sense of urgency to protect the data. So all the regulatory requirements are seen as a burden. Um, and, and there's still a big maturity gap. So there are certain companies who are extremely mature, who are respecting the regulations, uh, and also being really transparent to their customers and also perceived as trusted. There are still too many who still don't see uh, the importance and the urgency of being transparent to their customers and also respecting their, their privacy. Nora, do you think uh, respecting the regulations has something to do with the ethics of a company that they're just not saying, well, darn it, those are the rules and we're going to get slapped with a fine if we go outside the boundaries of what we've been told by our local or our national government, but we have an ethical policy to respect privacy. Do you th is there a balancing act there? And you think some companies are ethical and they'll, they'll play by the rules, and some companies just say, ah, rules be damned. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I would say, so, so personally, I would say ethics should be also playing a huge role because it, mm -hmm. should, it should be driven by a sense of responsibility. But unfortunately, so if looking at Europe uh, with a new EU regulation introduced with very high fines, and unfortunately, that is what is driving right now compliance and what is driving privacy also on the agenda of the executives. So summarizing your question, I would say, yeah, yes, it would be indeed great if ethics and a sense of responsibility would be the driver. But unfortunately, we still do see that the regulatory requirements are needed and that these are uh, more or less a sign for action. Thank you. Roger Gorman, talk to me. What do you think? 
So I think, well, the regulatory thing is, is, is heightened because the world, it's so much made up of opt-in, not opt-out. And I think we've fundamentally moved the dial. If, if for example, take donor cards, um, as an example, it was an opt-out model. I mean, that's quite a big, bold, brave statement. Um, but that, that's how I see we're leaning into the ethical side of the story, but also to start to unlock the sort of processes and policies around this. Um, but in terms of the corporate world, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that I, I believe about 50% of the workforce by 2020 will be made up of millennials. And their biggest driving factor is not to do with press or journalists or the news and so on. It's actually, you know, uh, UGC, so user-generated content. Um, And so something we we talk about a lot um, is about the future of the digital space is very much about the currency of trust. So very much what Tim was talking about earlier. Um, And if you look at the credibility of that around things like TripAdvisor, Amazon and eBay and so on, um, this is coming out uh, as a very strong currency, um, but it comes from, this credibility comes from human-to-human interactions. Um, and I think ultimately my sort of rounding off point is if you think about the trade-off that we all make, uh, for example, using Gmail, using Google Maps and so on, the, sort of, the, the Google suite, there is essentially a trade-off between knowing that there's actually an okay, quote-unquote, amount of data they're taking from us in order to get such an amazing experience back for free. Um, so I think my summary point is this is all going to be around a trade-off that we need to consider. Um, and I think medical data is, is a great example of that. Um, so just consider, continually considering your trade-off that you have to give away as an individual to the unbelievable potential value of experiences of, sort of medical and you know, travel and trust and so on from the market. Thank you, Roger. Good points. I like that you brought up the idea of medical data, and and we very often do shows on on our various SAP Game Changers radio series about wearables. And uh, that arises a question not just medical but personal body data. You wear that Fitbit. There's a Russian bank that will give you a reduced rate on your mortgage or a raised rate of interest on your special savings account if you will transmit your Fitbit data to them and they know you're exercising regularly and that you're maintaining your health. They want you to live and be healthy and they're willing to give you a monetary incentive to do that. Question is who wants to share that data? Any comment on that aspect of medical or body data, Roger, before I go back to Tim? Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, good example. Uh, Nuffield did that quite well. Um, I think even going back uh, seven, eight years ago, they, they signed up with one of the big insurance companies and so they sort of married mm-hmm. or they attempted to marry um, the uh, the, the nudging of uh, you know, techniques of getting people to have quote-unquote healthier lifestyles. Um, I think statistically, and I'm, I'm guessing it's sort of data I was thinking about five years ago that I've not thought about for a while, um, is I don't know how much that actually worked in the grand scheme of things for them, but it was a wonderful, very powerful marketing um, approach. But fundamentally, I would say the, 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 as you know, wearable technologies and obviously especially through the phone technologies going back to um, you know, sort of, and also the Internet of Everything, um, there will be a far better tie-up between actual data um, and your actual medical and sort of light, improvement lifestyle with with your insurance, et cetera. And I think that will be ultimately very powerful. Interesting. Tim Barker, any thoughts on how we've opened up this topic before we move on? Yeah, well, I think one of the foundation, there were two things that were covered off uh, that Roger mentioned that are just worthwhile punctuating. <clears throat> One is the idea of what is the default? Is this a default opt-in or a default opt-out? And clearly, you know, what you already see, even with technologies like Fitbit, they, they create a model that allows uh, companies to allows consumers to connect and opt-in as part of that. And that means that essentially we've all got, we've then got 
the other side to this, which is uh, a symmetrical benefit, a benefit that is returned to me. So effectively, there's, an, there's a value exchange that goes on there. So it's simply that I'm getting value out by, by kind of providing data in. And whether that's uh, Fitbit device data that gives you a better insurance premium or Amazon better recommendations based on data you've got, I think that's probably um, the default thinking that we need to go in and looking at this uh, rather than looking at data exploita exploitation, really looking at how we can use that to create a better experience for our customers and prospects. We certainly hope so. Before I move to some statements from Nora, I just want to bring in one more comment from your notes, Tim Barker. You talk about social media and long-term memory of social media, and you say social media can be a valuable archives of our lives. Nothing ever really goes away, does it? And companies can find it long after the fact. Do you think that's a, a part of the issue of data, data privacy, that we, we forget something but they don't, that they can find everything we ever put out there? Uh, Tim, any thoughts on that before I move on? Yeah, well, I think um, the, the point I wanted to raise on that is that this is changing. It's changing in both you know, um, the way that we uh, people interact with social media, and it's also changing the way that with social media and how they treat and handle our data. So a couple of really quick examples on that, mm -hmm. whether it be both through um, temporal social networks like Snapchat, where your content lives momentarily, or in the way that I observe my children using Instagram, where they maintain a small number of photos up there because they just want to engage in the moment and not build a history. Um, so I think both behavior is changing uh, subtly in both with applications. And what we're also seeing, Datasift works with a large number of social networks. What we're also seeing now is that um, there, there is a certain cutoff window by which data is no longer accessible. Um, Facebook have a 90-day you know, policy so that data is not accessible beyond 90 days if you're an application or you're trying to gain insight from that. And I think that really is about providing governance controls um, that go beyond what the legal frameworks would provide to make sure that we can build and maintain a kind of trusted ecosystem. Thank you very much. Let's turn to some notes from Nora Bukadid, who's calling in from Amsterdam from the offices of EY. Nora, I could go a couple places. Do you want to talk a little more about legislation, about the upcoming EU GDPR, and get into the, the actual <laughs> language? Would you like to inform us, since EU is so much in the news today for various and sundry reasons? You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, actually, I'm not without going into really the legal requirements, but uh, mm -hmm. I know that people are, are reacting very heavily on the new regulation. But in general, if you just look at it from, from a logic perspective, it's not a very strange requirement. So the requirements around transparent processing, clear communication, using plain language, not too legal wording, so that the people are very much aware of, of what data they're sharing, what's happening with their data now, but also in the future, how it is processed, how it is protected, and also what your rights are, the choices that you are. Like we've discussed before, there are people who are posting a lot, sharing a lot on social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, data protection or privacy regulation is not really about uh, limiting the use or the sharing of information, but it's more of leaving it up to the individual of what are you willing to share because there's a huge deviation in that. There are some people who really don't have anything to hide or claim to not have anything mm -hmm. to hide and feel comfortable sharing everything, but leaving the choice with the individual who actually own their own data, uh, I think that is, that is most important. And if going into to the requirements 
They're, they're all very, very, very simple. Just be transparent and inform the people what you're doing with their data and leave the choice to them. Interesting. And before we get Roger and Tim in on this conversation, Nora, I'm looking at some notes here about the, I talked about fines being imposed before you say the reality is, uh, despite how badly we want to believe ethics and deeply believe Mm -hmm. in privacy, deep belief in privacy would drive an organization's privacy protection efforts. The reality is the imposed fines of 2% of the annual turnover triggered investments and efforts protection PII. I think I read that all wrong, but tell me what that means. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's complete. So, uh, as EY, we did yearly perform a global information security survey where privacy is also a topic. And there you see that privacy has never been very high on the agenda. Well, if you mm-hmm. look at the EU directive, though it has, it was a directive, not directly a regulation. And, and the difference there is that then you had local implementation and local laws. But uh, they actually, the majority of the requirements and the principles were the same. But it was never a priority. And just few of the companies that we work with, and, and there are quite a lot, really had privacy high on their agenda. But now that this is introduced with the 2% fines, which is significant, and, and the previous versions had 5% of your annual turnover of the previous mm-hmm. fiscal year, uh, and that is actually the trigger for, for a lot of companies to start considering data protection Okay, Roger Gorman, thoughts? Are you aware of these fines, and what do you think about these triggers for companies to get F, to get uh, for us to make them be ethical? Can we? Um, so I'm probably uh, not as close, of course, um, regarding the, the legalities um, into the detail. Um, I think one thing I'm very keen to, for us to at least chew over at some point in this is around. We, we're going to be talking, rightly so, about the plethora of opportunity of data outside a company. Uh, one of the things that we've identified that we are fascinated by is actually the existing data that lives inside a company for everyone's mm-hmm. uh, whims. So when you think about the combination of existing ATS systems, which are their human resource sort of applicant tracking systems from HR, their CRM systems, their timesheets where they build clients, um, if you think about emails, um, I mean, there are divisions of some companies where just departments will, will, will exchange over a billion emails um, a year. Uh, that you've got forums. All these places are so rich in data. Um, and it poses a different set of questions, of course, because, you know, when you send a work email, do you quote-unquote own that? Does the company own it? Mm-hmm. Um, will, you, will you scare people away from being perhaps more honest in conversations if, if the company's trying to, for the right reasons, bring that together, aggregate the uh, compounded knowledge from that to improve the business strategically? Um, so that, that's another big factor that I think that it really must be part of a story like this um, because there is mm-hmm. so much knowledge and information already in a company. Tim Barker, thoughts? Yeah, I think um, what you talk about there is really almost, as, as you described, Roger, almost the internal use of this and maybe to some degree um, probably companies know more about their prospects and customers than they do about their own employees. And so there's definitely... Uh, you know, value to be hold on the on the data assets that just sit live within internally. We all know the disconnected silos that there are as part of that. But of course, we've all opted in. You know, through you know, in joining a company. So that I think the typical standard is that you know these are company assets that you're using as part of that. But in many ways, the same out the same things you can learn from analyzing that data you know what are the top topics whether what are the things that are causing most distress or challenges for a company and those same things are then you know 
things you learn when you look external uh, as part of that. Um, I guess to bring it back to the um, the, the kind of general data protection uh, uh, part of it, for, for me as an entrepreneur, um, I think this is a phenomenal opportunity for companies to make data privacy the killer app, essentially, um, mm-hmm. and especially for companies that want to sell into Europe or are based mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, the fact that you can use, there is a unified model, which means that you can sell across all of Europe, is something we, we should embrace, really, because believe me, um, the challenges of tackling it by country by country ju- just slow every marketer down. Interesting. Nora, I hear you in the background. You've been mm-hmm-ing a couple of times, and I want to make sure you get get your chance. We've got a lot of interesting thoughts coming from what we started with you. Why don't you uh, talk about what Tim has said and Roger has said on your topic? Let's keep going. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that privacy should be embraced and indeed seen as an opportunity. And indeed, there are two sides. There is one thing. There are, there are limitless possibilities with internal data, data obtained from social media, from social networks. Uh, and I think that the possibility should be utilized and, and uh, including privacy in that and respecting privacy facilitates that more than it's limited. Okay. Roger Gorman. I want to move to some notes you sent me before the show. Very interesting comments. You've got a lot of interesting sound bites here. Let me just put this one on the table and see if you want to go with it. You say fast data, slow policies. People are the problem, not the paperwork. Policies represent the last bastion to change everything. What do you think? Is it too late? Are we ever going to get policies that work because of people and social and people wanting to share and blithely just putting their lives out there? Is it just too good to be true that companies just can go out and say, wow, I didn't know about that about Roger. I didn't know that about Nora. Let's start selling them. What do you think? Well, <laughs> Great question, and I and I suspect I'm going to cause myself some, some enemies around the world uh, by by following on too 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 above me. But well, I, I think um, I think there is a very very important role, of course, um, by uh, folk who are involved in the on the regulatory process side and policy side, etc. Um, what I find interesting, though, is um, is that their role essentially is to say no to things. They're not mm-hmm. driven. Or then the behaviours that they are displaying are, are not linked to trying to solve problems and open opportunity. They are there really to mitigate risk. And if you look about the compliance divisions around m- multiple firms, if you think about security policies, be that governmental, be that uh, across marketing functions, be that across you know think about advertising to kids. There's so many areas. Um, while we have uh, uh, a plethora of, of unbelievable professionals, talented professionals, if they are mostly um, signed up to function to say no, we're going to get one, one mile an hour. And I think just to link this back to the corporate world is you're, you're, we are observing, all of us, how um, companies are accelerating to become flatter, more horizontal organizations to create you know, abundant opportunities through collaboration is, is absolutely going stratospheric. It's a hugely exciting time. And it's getting more and more out of sync with the complexities of different companies and different territories that can't function. And obviously we know Germany is a very, it's a very ex- extreme example of that. Um, so, you know, to navigate that, that sort of continual disjointness and an increasingly out of sync experience between uh, localized um, uh, rules with the increase that we're seeing in the, the demand from corporate as well as marketing, et cetera, is, I, I think, just fascinating. But I think, it, it, as I go back to the earlier point, I think... We're going to start to change things if we can start to uh, empower 
the regulators and the people that set policies to find creative solutions and not just to say no. Creative solutions. Do you mean there is hope, Roger? There is hope that uh, creative solutions will get us out of this this mire of where we are, where oh, people I, are so leery. What do you think? <laughs> Tim Barker. Excuse me, I'm having a little coughing. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. We got to get you up to serendipity for that frozen hot chocolate. That'll clear up your cough in a second. You want to say something before I, I get Tim in on this? Go ahead, Roger. I'm, I'm waiting. We are patient. No, please, please, I'm, I'm just enjoying a little coughing. My hot chocolate. I hope Tim can. Okay, it's awful hot chocolate. We got to get this man out of that hotel and uptown. Tim Barker, talk to us. Yeah, well, I guess the question is: is do, do organisations want to edge? Want to want to want to be on the edge of what's allowed? You know, and I, mm-hmm. and so to some degree, you know, um, legislation's fantastic at, um, at providing guidance as what's happened in the past but pretty poor about predicting the future or legislating things for the future. If you look at the, the world of social, you know, in the last five years or so, it's then become part of this whole initiative around big data. The new, new things in big data are all around machine learning and applying more kind of intelligence to this at scale. And so it goes back to where we started. When we look at a brand and you look at um, ethics as the guiding principle on this, beyond not simply just what might be permissible. Um, I know we're all in a technology arms race, but essentially brands can be built and destroyed through, you know, good or bad technology and use of it. So, you know, a great example of this would be, um, you know, a UK charity uh, last year uh, very innocently tried to create a Twitter application that could identify people that had a risk of suicide um, looking at the text and the posts that were used. And, of course, the, the downside of that is that it then allowed people to, insurance companies perhaps, to systematically identify, identify people that had risk. And, and you can imagine the consequences of, of that data being used at an oh. industrial scale. So, so ultimately, it, it does have to be a balance between what um, privacy policy will allow and essentially an internal data ethics will allow. And we're at the point where essentially science can automate a massive amount of insight for marketers um, and we've just got to be cautious about how far we get on that path. Interesting. While you were speaking, I was Googling data privacy and I found an interesting comment here, uh, an article from a year ago, January 28, 2014. Celebrate Data Privacy Day with us. It's from Qualcomm. Uh, and uh, they say, what is Data Privacy Day, you may ask? And they talk about an international awareness effort to encourage Internet users to consider the privacy implications of their own online actions and motivate all companies to make the protection of privacy and data a greater priority. This was coordinated and led by the National Cybersecurity Alliance Data Privacy Day, and it began in the U.S. and Canada all the way back in January 2008, and now it's celebrated. January 28th is the day. It's celebrated in over 30 countries, and it commemorates the 1981 signing of Convention 108-1981, the first legally binding international treaty dealing with privacy and data protection. I said 1981. I can't believe it. Roger, any comments on that? Well, I guess... (laughs) I guess it shows that we've been thinking about this for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll be think very so. interested to see how the how the whole thing is played out. And uh, but I but I also would love to know the people behind, um, you know, that that agenda. I mean, ultimately, it's I think we've all agreed it's critical. 
Um, and we need probably more of these things. But the question is, again, is just driving that behavior to find the, as I say, the creative solutions. That's kind of like, I guess, my, my fundamental overarching point. Okay. Uh, Nora, any comments on this? I'm searching through everybody's notes here to see where we want to take it. Mm. I'm tempted to just open up the floor. Nora, you sent me so much interesting information uh, about trust and customer loyalty and awareness. You know what, Nora? I'm going to go with something. Let, let's talk about this. Um, general understanding of today's and the emergency emerging privacy issues is not sufficient to give privacy the prioritization it requires and deserves and then you say privacy awareness among organizations executives is relatively poor now you chose the word awareness not compliance not uh the aware not the the motivation to uphold policies. You said privacy awareness is relatively poor. Aren't executives people too? Don't they have social media? Don't they have uh, user-generated data that's coming out of their own keystrokes? Nora, talk to me about this. I think it might be an interesting yeah. place for us to take the conversation. Well, they they do, but uh, the reality is that still the majority of the executives that we talk to, and they're of respectable companies, uh, but still, they're not aware. So very often, I get the question back, like, what's the actual risk? So then also limited it only to the data that, that they um, kind of think that the, their company is processing, but not looking into the possibilities. So that data, even though pretty innocent on itself, when enriching that with other sources, which happens more and more and more, uh, can become and have actually quite a lot of impact on human beings themselves. So uh, we've, we're discussing now a lot around transparency, but before mm-hmm. you can provide the transparency to the individuals, you have to know yourself. What kind of data am I processing? What are the risks to the data that I'm processing? Am I aware that I'm sharing it with third parties? And these all sound like very logic, basic things, but uh, a lot of the European companies are not there yet. They're absolutely not aware of what the data they're processing across the different departments no idea where it's flowing to, to what countries, what third parties have access to, the, to the, that data, and also then the legal part and contractually also that covered. And, and that is a major concern, and I think that that has to change first before we can go into transparency. Interesting. I want to read an example from your notes, and then I'm going to ask Tim and Roger to comment on it. You say, Nora, when an individual entrusts you with his or her wallet, including their bank card, their ID, the driver's license, passport, you understand the importance of the need to protect it, and you will comply with an unregulated expectation that the owner has when they give it to you. You'll protect it. You'll respect the privacy. You won't copy it. You won't share it with third parties. You won't leave it out in the open so strangers can see it. Because your due diligence will mean you're going to keep it so that nobody else gets access to it. You won't use it unless they explicitly consented to have you use, for example, that credit card for a payment or a set of payments. And you'll respect the owner's right to get it back when they ask for it. Now, let's flip it over to digital data. Similar scenario. Nora says when an organization holds the similar data and in a much higher volume in digital form, this basic understanding of the need of protecting personal data weakens and perhaps we could say slides off the table and disappears on occasion. Nora, this is such a basic I think it's a great example. Tim, Roger, any comments on what happens when data becomes digital and we forget this trust factor? Tim, Roger? Well, I mean, I think one of the things... Tim. You you go Go ahead, ahead. Roger. You've you've stopped coughing, so you go first. (laughs) (laughs) It's pure serendipity. Roger, take it. 
I was say, thank God for the mute button. Um, well, I, I mean, I just, I just, I, I guess I, I'm, uh, I find it very interesting, and you're right, that, that, that what's happening also, there's a sense of almost lethargic approach to how, again, the Google experience is always quite a useful one, where the greater the value, the more sort of um, uh, relaxed a lot of us become. But there is a huge risk not to understand the right data. And we're also seeing with banking some of the crises that have happened with that um, but I think the observation I'd like to wet into this is the fact that actually there's a bit of a juxtaposition because um, the play that I think we need to consider here is greater data um, can actually increase uh, the predictability around things. So actually you decrease risk and you, and you increase protection uh, when you have tighter policies and data uh, privacy um, uh, models in place. So I just want to sort of chuck that into the mix. I think that's a very interesting aspect to that. Tim? Yeah, I guess just to add, add to that, the, uh, I think, you know, what, we, what we've seen unfold in the last few years is great intentions, sometimes bad implementations. So in terms of, of data sharing, you know, the ability to share data, um, whether you've seen that in telco companies in the U.S., healthcare companies, um, or even the NHS in the U.K., one of the challenges is the idea of how, how do you actually share data that is personal in a way that cannot, where it cannot be re-identified. There is some, um, there was some, you know, uh, pivotal research that was done uh, recently where they could, where research could identify that 87% of the U.S. population could be identified through three basic things: portion of your zip code, your gender, um, and your age. And so, uh, so with that, what you often see is that these little markers known as metadata detail about you that is often shared as part of that to help you do, you know, get some value and segmentation of, of data for analytics can also be used to re-identify. And that, that's really one of the challenges in here is, in effect, you need to, to anonymize it. You need to be looking at audiences of data, not data sets that are really about individuals. Um, and that may change the way that people can share data because when you're in a crowd, you, you cannot be identified. Hmm. Nora, thoughts? This was your, your great example. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think anonymization provides a lot of opportunities. And then also I think both gentlemen, Tim and Roger, would recognize also that anonymization is very difficult. Uh, and, and also, again, with the possibilities of an enriching it and then still identifying the individual. And depending, of course, on the topic, if you would, if you would do this on the responses of a Coca-Cola campaign, uh, then you won't identify very easily probably the individual. But if, you'd, if you would anonymize data around a rare disease, then still, even though the data is anonymized, you could still kind of track it back to the individual. So uh, responding to the anonymization part, it would solve a lot. Uh, but then still awareness, I think, is, is, is a main concern, and awareness should absolutely raise. Thank you very much. One more topic I want to squeeze in here before we move quickly to our predictions round. Roger Gorman, cloud versus on-prem. I don't think we covered this. How does this impact? David, data privacy and where the data goes and who can access it and what they can do. Any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, this is um, this is a big topic. So anyone in this sort of industry, this business, um, you have a vast, you have a very very large sort of oil tanker of attitude moving. There's, you know, the incumbent financial services companies, professional service companies, legal firms, etc. Of course, um, are very nervous about the cloud. And I think the point from uh, our, our experiences are. Um, companies that are offering incredible new services to just move the dial on for businesses 
um, the need to typically offer cloud-based services for two reasons. One, it's faster to iterate the technology. It's, it's easier to implement that, have data go into the business and the system and back out to the experience. Um, but actually, if you, when you run the numbers on um, very sort of smart technologies, is individual instances inside the cl- inside on premise rather uh, for large firms, that experience is actually going to be a poor cousin to very smart uh, uh, cloud-based solutions typically, um, and that's going to happen increasingly. So actually, this is this item, this topic is around companies, um, hopefully continually improving the attitude and approach to how they move their business to the cloud. Um, I think it's acknowledged by everybody as the no-brainer, but there is a lot of challenges to get businesses to move from A to B on this topic. Thank you very much. Perhaps a comeback topic. We will have to address it another time. Roger, I have to send congratulations to you on being honored last month at Davos as a top three global entrepreneur. Certainly something you can be, I know you are, very, very proud of. Okay, kids, it's time for us to hurtle into home plate. We're going to ask Tim Barker to do the honors. Tim, time for predictions round. You know the crystal ball routine. You've been on the show enough. So I'm going to tell you I love the year 2020. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, due to David data privacy, I did look into the crystal ball to see what is Tim Barker's favorite year for predictions. So I'll let you share that with us. Tell me what would be different about this conversation on data privacy and protection. At some future point, I can give you exactly 45 seconds. Tim Barker, predictions, go. Please don't replay this back to me in five years' time in case I'm wrong. (laughs) I think what we're already seeing, ironically, what we're seeing is social networks are are really leading a lot of the the topic of how to operationalize uh, privacy at scale. So I think what you will start to see is the broader adoption and usage of things like social logins, which essentially drive opt-ins, which allow us customers to control what data we want to share with whom for what purpose. Oh, that was brief and to the point. I predict that in five years we will have adopted the phrase privacy to replace privacy here in the U.S., and we will sound much more <laughs> charming. Thank you. Thank you, Tim Parker. Nora Bukadid, predictions, 45 seconds. How far in the future can you go? Go. Yeah, I'll go 10 years from now. I think disruptive innovators will go further in shaking up the established brands and I think trust, it was previously built throughout years based on the ability to fulfill promises. And right now, there are going to be much more expectations. And I think that enabling trust and any data-driven or data-enabled company will need to realize now that that is key to be successful and to be still a big brand in the future. Ah, okay. And we remember our quote that a brand is what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. So that's another issue. Thank you very much, Nora and Roger Gorman. Calling uh, Roger, if I wave out the window, can you see me? I'm on Long Island. You're in Manhattan. I think you can see. That's my hand out <laughs> there. I'm waving. Land. I'm I waving to you. Okay. I'm going to say it is a little hand. How did you know? We've never met. Roger Gorman, <laughs> predictions, 45 seconds, go. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I don't know, time-wise, sort of seven years-ish, um, I would love to see, and I hope, um, that there's going to be a very big move from 
uh, to the cloud, large organizations, which starts to unlock things. There's this notion of computational social science, which is kind of the topic of choice right now, where everything's blending together from external stuff that obviously uh, Tim's doing incredible, incredible work around, and obviously internal stuff from the companies all blending together, and it's all linked to trust. And I think the final thing is just this increasing appreciation of attitude. Um, so I'm, I'm very intrigued where actually technology is going to be bring your own technology or bring your own stuff to work, your own phone. You're going to be working incredible amounts now off your own devices um, for lots of reasons that we all know. Thank you very much. And by the way, Roger, write this down. Serendipity 3, Upper East Side Chocolates and Coffee Shop, 225 East 60th. I hope so. 225 East 60th Street. Google it. It's there. Serendipity 3. Thank you, Tim Barker. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Data Sift. Give them our shout out. Nora Buka did pleasure to meet you at EY. We have a lot of friends at EY and we appreciate your sharing your time all the way Thank from you. Amsterdam. Roger Gorman at ProFinda visiting New York City. Hope the rest of your trip is enjoyable and enjoy the frozen hot chocolate. Don't tell them I sent you because they won't even know who I am. Phil Durvin, co-owner of this series, Digital World with Game Changers, co owns it with Brad Borkin at SAP. Thank you both, Anya Rischke. Thank you so much for tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I'll be back in one hour with our newest edition of Game Changing Women. You don't want to miss that. And the topic today is what the Wonder Woman myth. Nora, listen carefully. The Wonder Woman myth and the modern corporation. You don't want to miss this one. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. It's been a pleasure. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.